The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Hello and you're very welcome to this additional Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It's been another remarkable week in American politics with the conviction of Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, both previous associates of Donald Trump in respective courts in New York and Virginia. So what's going to happen next and what is actually going on under the surface? I was joined by author Craig Unger, whose new book, House of Trump, House of Putin, puts forward the proposition that the current president of the United States is a Russian asset. Craig Unger, I think like many people, my jaw dropped when I watched the footage of last month's Helsinki summit between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And in the wake of that, in the days and weeks that followed, for the first time, a theory which previously had been confined to the wilder fringes of the internet and conspiracy theorists started being ventilated fully in in respectable media, I suppose, which is that Donald Trump is a Russian asset, which is really what your book proposes. Yes, I, I believe, frankly, that this is the... What we're witnessing has been the greatest intelligence operation of our times, and it's one that's been decades in the making, and I I go back to its origins. But you end up with a Russian uh, asset in the White House as president of the United States, and Trump says he's had zero contacts with Russia. I found at least 59 people who are intermediaries between and him and Russia over the last 30 years or so. And I sort of take you on a journey through that ride. And it starts off with the arrival of the Russian mafia in New York in the late 70s and early 80s. And a guy named uh, David Bokadin meets with Donald Trump. He buys five condos for $6 million. That's the equivalent of about $15 million today. And that's sort of the beginning. And what is happening is that the Russian mafia is using Trump real estate to launder money. And this is the beginning of a a long saga that goes on for more than 30 years. And I think a lot of people who read your book will be surprised to learn that the the Russian mafia in New York was actually a significant presence from the probably from the early 70s onwards. They arrived in Brighton Beach and the large criminal contingent overlapped to some extent with the real estate business in New York, of which, of course, a brash young property developer called Donald Trump was a very prominent member. And you make the comparison between that influx of mostly Jewish Russian refugees and the way in which Castro, when he opened his doors and let refugees out of Cuba, made sure that there were plenty of undesirables among the people who arrived in the new country. Right, right. Uh, True. This grew out of the sort of unintended consequences of of a bill that was designed to aid Soviet Jewry. And what President Leonid Brezhnev did back then uh, he opened the doors to the, the gulags, just as Castro did many years later uh, with the Marielle Boatless. So uh, thousands of criminals flooded into Bryden Beach. And uh, the, the uh, amazing thing to me was when the FBI was leading, looking for the leader of the Russian mafia in Brooklyn, they looked all over Brooklyn. And finally, they found that he lived at 721 Fifth Avenue in Trump Towers. And over over this next 30 years, I see... Uh, one 
criminal operation after another going on involving the Russian mob, mafia. There are gambling operations. There is a shootout. There's money laundering. And in the past, people have just written this off. And I believe these are not random and these are not coincidences. And the mafia plays a very different role in Russia than it plays in the United States. And, and to that end, I, I interviewed uh, the former head of counterintelligence for the KGB. And, we, and he talked about the mafia. He said, oh, it's just another branch of the KGB. The mafia, the Russian mafia is a state actor. And, w- and when, when you unpack that a bit and you look at, at the people who've been in Trump Tower, you realize that there have been Russian mafia operations who have links to Russian intelligence in the home of the man who is now president of the United States. And, and I find that very, very disturbing. It, 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 it sure is disturbing. But I wonder, just to push back against it a little bit, we know from the last 20, 25, 30 years that property in high-value cities like New York and like London as well is very attractive to people coming out of somewhere like Russia or the other post-Soviet republics who are looking to, for whatever reason, extract money, uh, ill-gotten in many cases, and to wash it and to launder it. And property is a classic way of doing it. So was Donald Trump the only person who was doing this? Or was he doing it in a more extreme way than than his competitors in the real estate business in New York? Well, there were definitely other people who were doing it. The, the interesting thing, of course, he's the one who became president of the United States. And the more telling thing is what happened after Trump went deeply, deeply in debt. And he overexpanded enormously with these massive casinos in Atlantic City, New Jersey. He ended up $4 billion in debt. And it was the Russian mafia who came to his aid. They own him. They brought him back to life. They, uh, his whole career in real estate is due to him. He, he owns them. And, and when people say, well, where's the smoking gun? Where's the compromise? I think it's staring uh, us in, in plain, you know, it's out there in plain sight. And what do we see in plain sight? What, what is staring us in plain sight? Well, that he was $4 billion in debt. And the Russians came up with a new model that helped them out. You, we, we, we saw a firm uh, called Bayrock, a real estate development firm. And in the book, I go into the details on how they raised money. They partnered with, with Donald Trump. Uh, we saw buildings here in New York. There's one called, uh, it was called the Trump Soho. They had to change its name. But they had to raise about $400 million. Uh, I traced where the money came from. And you see it coming through uh, institutions that uh, that were were known for laundering Russian money. You, the, uh, you also see the sale of of condos again and again. We found uh, there's been at least 1,300 condominiums, and and a Trump condo, a cheap Trump condo, costs over a million dollars. So uh, we we have over 1,300 condos. That, that meet all the criteria what are, for what is normally called money laundering. Uh, by that, I mean the, these were purchases to anonymous, by anonymous shell companies, uh, and they were all cash transactions. Now, the, the Trump business changed fundamentally, as you say, after he got into trouble with the casinos in Atlantic City in the 1990s and effectively effectively went bankrupt, in fact, went bankrupt several times. The new kind of Trump family business which emerged at the turn of this century wasn't really about the Trumps building anything, was it? It was about the Trumps selling their name as a brand to whoever the highest bidder was or whoever had some money. 
Absolutely. It's um, just as uh, any product can be franchised, Trump decided to uh, franchise uh, high-end real estate. And he was getting uh, uh, franchise fees of from 18 to 25 percent without having to put up the money, without having to develop it, uh, and without having to sell the condos. These are nasty people we're talking about who Donald Trump was dealing with on a regular basis. Felix Sater, who was uh, convicted of a pretty horrendous assault in a, in a, in a fight in a bar, stabbed, a, stabbed somebody in the neck with a, with, with a broken glass. There are, there, are, there are a number of people who are allegedly involved in human trafficking and the prostitution of underage girls. Uh, they, they really are pretty nasty, Sharon. Absolutely. I, I think what, what I try to do in the book is, is I take the reader uh, through different worlds as you follow Trump's ascent. And you see him uh, see uh, these really sort of thuggish, brutal mobsters. I mean, they're heavily tattooed. The Russian mafia has a wonderfully colorful uh, and exotic subculture. And, and I have photos of these heavily tattooed, having tattoos on your knees means you kneel before no one. And that it, but it ends up later on with these incredibly rich oligarchs where you see a party off the coast of Turkey and first there's a 200-foot yacht, then a 300-foot yacht, then a 500-foot yacht. And uh, they're, uh, 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 you know, it's beyond decadent. One of the yachts has 29 footstools, each of which is upholstered in in the hide of a different endangered species. And I began to read, this is Donald Trump's world. It's just unbelievably decadent. Jesus. There's, in parallel, <laughs> yeah, I'm taken aback indeed by that myself. In parallel with that, with, the, with these incredibly dubious relationships, there's the ongoing relationship actually with, with Russia itself. And you make the point, and you've already said it here, that you can't disentangle the mafia from the oligarchs and you can't disentangle the oligarchs from, uh, from Putin, that it's, a, it's all an integral sort of web of, co- of sorts, what the Russians call Sistema. Absolutely. And, and I, I mean, I, I was able to obtain uh, transcripts of secretly recordings of the Ukrainian intelligence in which you, you, they actually talk about Vladimir Putin's meeting with a, a mobster named Semyon Mogilevich. And uh, so, so, I mean, that, so that is a, a matter of fact that, that I, I think can't be disputed. There's a, there, there's a lot of questions about who Donald Trump did meet and didn't meet over the years. At one point, he claimed to have met uh, Vladimir Putin in 2013, I think it was, and then then he didn't, and who knows what, what that situation is. But way, way back, before all this stuff which we hear about now, about the Steele dossier and strange goings-on with prostitutes during the, during the 2013 Miss Universe contest in Moscow, you go right back to, I think, 1987, um, for a, a much, much earlier trip to Moscow, where you suggest exactly the same kind of thing might have been happening. Absolutely. I, I mean, you, you can see two tracks of things happening. Uh, uh, on on the, the one hand, the, the Russian mobsters are in New York and they're starting to launder their money through Trump properties. And some of them are actually taking up residence in Trump properties. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you, you see... Uh, 
the the I mean, this is before the fall of the Soviet Union. So the, you see the Soviets approach Donald Trump in 1986 and 1987. And you, we have the Soviet ambassador, Anatoly Dubinin, uh, and his daughter who meet with Trump. They say how marvelous Trump Tower is. They want him to do stuff uh, in, in Russia. Uh, I, I interviewed the former head of counterintelligence, uh, General Oleg Kalugin, uh, former head of counterintelligence of the KGB, and he was saying typically that's how it starts, with an innocent con conversation. And then they flew Trump over to Moscow. Uh, uh, Kalugin said that he believed that Trump had fun with lots of girls during that trip, and he was uh, almost certain that the KGB had compromised on that. And the, you know, the psychological personal profile of Donald Trump could hardly be better tailored to being easily turned by a hostile intelligence agency, could it? Absolutely. We're talking about a guy who is susceptible to flattery. If you heard recently his uh, remarks about Omarosa, he, he was saying how that uh, he kept her around because she said nice things about him. He loves it when people say nice things about it. He'll only listen to Fox News because they're always saying nice things about him. And those are the people he ends up hiring. You know, one thing I wonder, I mean, going back to that Helsinki summit and looking at his performance there beside Vladimir Putin, where, to be honest, to me, it almost looked at times as if Vladimir Putin was embarrassed um, by by how far he was going. He's kind of a terrible asset, isn't he? I mean, I, my only knowledge of this stuff is through TV series like The Americans and the novels of John le Carre. But I would, if I was running an asset, I'd expect him to be a bit more subtle about it than Donald Trump is. Right. Well, in fact, that was the, most, the hardest thing for me to believe in a way when I read the Steele dossier. Uh, it alleges that Trump is funneling intelligence to the Russians. And I thought that doesn't make sense at all. It's hard to come up with anyone who's uh, less disciplined as a spy than Donald Trump. I mean, he's completely susceptible to flattery, blurts out things. He, he's announcing what appears to be uh, his allegiance to Russia on the campaign stump. He tells them to release their emails in a campaign rally. So I found that the hardest to believe. But one of the things I began to realize over time, and, and I talked to some American prosecutors about this, is uh, when he had those Russians in Trump Tower, they can be gathering intelligence. They can be gathering intelligence on the number of condos they're selling to various oligarchs. They know who is financing these new uh, Trump-branded developments like Trump Towers, and they can easily funnel that kind of intelligence to the Kremlin. But is it is it possible, I mean, reading your book, one of the things that struck me is it's possible that the Russians were cultivating Trump and indeed possibly turning or compromising him in, in business and, and in other ways, but they never expected he was going to become president of the United States. I think that's absolutely true. And, and people often ask me, well, how did they know 20 years ago or 30 years ago that he was going to be president? And the answer, of course, is that they didn't. And it, it's really, uh, when I talked to General Kalugan, he said at the time they had a they had uh, at least 300 American spies uh, in that early era before the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, but uh, I, I think they, they certainly cultivated it. And when, every time he came back to Russia, he started talking about running for president. Even in, he started, he made a, a brief foray in 1988, just after his first trip. So it looks like they were cultivating him. If you read uh, there was a full-page ad he took out in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and the Washington Post in 1988. 
And it was uh, putting forth these foreign policy points, and it could have been dictated by Vladimir Putin today. It was an assault against NATO, against Europe. We're wasting our money being friends with Europe and so on. And this, to me, is, is uh, sort of insane. The, the Western alliance, as far as I'm concerned, has been the most successful foreign policy venture in American history. It's been good for Europe. It's been good for the United States. And he wants to tear it apart as does Vladimir Putin. What do you think is going on with... Um, Donald Trump bought a very large, very expensive golf course here in Ireland, along with a couple in Scotland, which were totally, you know, made no business sense whatsoever. And not only that, he did it... He bought them with... He didn't borrow in order to buy them. And the classic way of any real estate developer to, to do their project is to borrow as much as you can and put as little of your own money in. Where do you think the money might have come from to buy the <laughs> golf, golf, golf club in Ireland? Uh, well, it came from Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there was a, a meeting with, I, I, I'm trying to remember, with one of his sons, with, uh, with Donald Trump Jr. And uh, a golf uh, uh, fan was saying, well, how are you building all these golf courses after the 2008 uh uh, financial turned down. No one was funding golf courses, and of course, it was Russian money. Obviously, there are a range of very serious investigations going on, and there's also some very good journalism going on around this subject at the moment. With a lot of people finally, perhaps, investigating what's what's going on beneath the surface of Donald Trump. But the most important investigation at the moment is Robert Mueller's one. Do you think that the kind of evidence which you lay out in your book? offers substantive reason for prosecutions arising out of Robert Mueller's or indeed anybody, any other federal investigation? Well, I, I, I don't know. What, I, Mueller has to know all this stuff. And I say that because he was director of the FBI and the FBI uh, did, certainly prior to uh, 9-11, focused a fair amount on Russian, uh, the Russian mafia. And there's no, he, he also had on his team a woman named Lisa Page, and Lisa Page had been part of the FBI task force that was investigating uh, Russian organized crime. Uh, I, I think Mueller is going to go for, for whatever convictions he can get, and that's precisely what he should be doing. But I, but I think as these uh, uh, legal processes unfold, more and more we're going to see a, a sense of the big picture unfold. And so right now we're, we, uh, the Manafort trial, Paul Manafort is on trial. Uh, it's gone before the jury. There will be another trial after this. Uh, and and Mueller isn't focusing on the broad pictures. He's, he wants to get a conviction. But I, but I think as they unfold, we'll see that Manafort uh, was, was also doing Putin's bidding for many, many years. He was working uh, for, for uh, President Viktor Yanukovych of Ukraine and, and effectively was uh, uh, making, uh, doing Putin's bidding in Ukraine. This is just the most extraordinary story, if it's true, to my mind, in, of, of the last century. The idea that the United States government at the highest level be penetrated, that there be effectively a Manchurian candidate sitting in the White House. And yet, when I look at the news in the United States, I look at two gentlemen at a Trump rally last weekend, and they're wearing T-shirts saying, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. How, how effective has the Russian poisoning of the American political system been? It's, it's been spectacular, and I think people don't quite understand it, and I think it's been exacerbated 
by their very sophisticated use of social media. Uh, there, there have been uh, some very good stories uh, at, at times, and, and CNN would show how they would take a real event, such as we had police uh, gunning down a black man about a year, during, this was during the 2016 election, it got a lot of press, and the Russian bots went to work, and they, they would inflame passions on the right, and then they would inflame passions on the rest through very sophisticated tweeting and use of social bots with social media. And it, it, it has been effective. There's no question about it. And, and I think it uh, has, has inflamed racism to a, in the United States to a, to a horrible point. But it also matters, didn't it? The Russians effectively are engaging in asymmetrical warfare. They themselves have a almost bankrupt country with a disastrous economy and a dysfunctional political system, which has been in retreat for 25 years. But somehow, somehow using the old tools of the KGB and newer tools of, of new technology, they've managed to insert themselves into, into the system and, and fight back in a way, I suppose. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, my first chapter, I call this virtual World War Three, and, and I see this as a global conflict. And, and if you look at it from Putin's point of view, he has said that the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest uh, catastrophe in world history. And he wants to rebuild it. And if you look at, at Russia since uh, the demise of the Soviet Union in 91, one by one, uh, uh, I, I think it's a total of 23 uh, East Bloc nations have joined NATO. So, so, it, so it's been an utter humiliation. And he has great imperial ambitions. He wants to, to uh, rebuild the Russian Empire, as it was during the Soviet days, and and you see him go. Uh, you can see Russia playing a role in Brexit, uh, and, and you can see it in in my book. I, I discuss what they've done in Hungary. Uh, they've done stuff in uh, had operations in Estonia, in Poland, and so forth. Uh, sometimes they're less successful. They've tried to aid Marine Le Pen in France, but w- one of the clever things they do that's sort of horrifying is. When, when Russia began in, uh, bombing in Syria and leading to, uh, I believe, 12 million refugees, they then start to inflate passions all over Russia, all over Europe, rather, um, uh, by uh, fueling right-wing anti-immigrant populist movements in virtually every country in Europe. So do you think the Syrian refugee crisis was engineered by Russia as part of this conflict? Uh, whether they uh, initiated it or not with that in mind, I do not know. But after it started to happen, I think they took full advantage of it. This may be a difficult last question, but what do you think is going to come of Donald J. Trump? Uh, well, I think and hope that he will be impeached. I, I, I do. The, the Democrats have to win the, the congressional elections coming up uh, in November. Um, and uh, if that's the case, but... Uh, I, I think it will uh, lead to impeachment. Whether it leads to an indictment, I do not. Uh, a, a conviction, I do not know. Impeachment is sort of a, uh, your, your your listeners may not know, but it's sort of the same as an, as an indictment, but it's done by Congress, uh, and the Senate would have to then convict him. Uh, what I have to think is the spectacle that will unfold will be pretty devastating, and we're just at the beginning of it right now. Uh, These are early days still. There is a lot to come out. Craig Unger, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
And that is it for this special edition of the Inside Politics podcast. We'll be back as usual next Wednesday. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, Philip Brady. If you want to contact me, you can get me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 